I feel like I'm taking a page out of Pastor Ben's book here, but you guys all sounded amazing. That was great. And, uh, yes. But I have to turn this negative. Just warning you. We're going to a dark place. Uh, at least a dark place in my psyche. It's cooked carrots. I think I need better sermon openers because if I'm starting with cooked carrots, like where do we go from here? But in all honesty, uh, as I was raised, uh, my mom and I learned a lot about our own individual endurance by this uh, or surrounded this issue of cooked carrots. She's a sweet woman. All my life's been all of like 95 pounds and she can be feisty, but she's very gracious. A lot of people love Carolyn and all this stuff. But man, to me, she was a force to be reckoned with. When I was a child, she would put those cooked carrots on a plate in front of me and say, you're not getting up from this table until those are gone. And I learned a lot of endurance in those times because I I wasn't particularly like rebellious, like, oh, I'll show you. I just knew what happens to my gag reflex whenever I get those anywhere near my face. They were bitter. They were terrible. Some would say, oh, they're tasteless. It's like, well, why are we eating them if they're tasteless? They're not tasteless. They taste terrible. And I'll eat them raw, but I just can't stand them cooked. And so she would say, you're not getting up from that table until they're gone. And so I would watch the clock do this. Seriously, a couple of times I remember this, it would go till almost nine o'clock. I mean, she was, she was, she had endurance. And it's not because she was mean or harsh or nasty. I only remember a couple of these moments, but she felt like this is a moment for Brent to learn a lesson. And I think now that I'm older, because we do turn into these brilliant people when we're older, right? And understanding how right our parents were, I think I started to understand that she knew it was right for me and that she was setting the tone. Did she think that I was going to die the next day because I didn't eat cooked carrots? No. But she was making a point, I think, that your parents know what's better for you. And you've got to eat these things because they're good for you. But there's a problem with all of that. She would share the same line that we all as parents have shared and are continuing to share. for As long as we will be parenting children, we will use this line. You should eat those and be thankful because there's kids around the world who don't have that. And so, and so I knew this for those of you over 40, I saw all the Sally Struthers commercials. I knew that children were starving and I felt badly about that. I, I, I wanted that to be the motivation that would finally put a cooked carrot down my gullet and I just could not make it happen. No matter how many external, uh, a sharing, the sharing of how much external wisdom she had or the examples that she would give, I just couldn't wrap my head around the fact I can't make that truth change how it feels going down. And most of us know how we should be. I don't think there's many people walking through those doors this morning saying, oh yeah, let's just see if that preacher can turn my head around and my heart around to want to follow the Lord. I think so many of us were here for a reason and we really want to be obedient. We really want to be that faithful person. We really want to have our lives marked by a following of Jesus Christ. But because of what we're going through or the way we feel about certain things, it's almost like someone just dropped cooked carrots right in front of us and said, I want to do this. I believe that it's good for me. I just can't stomach it. I don't know how that's supposed to change. So I'm hoping that we might avoid our typical be thankful this season kind of message full of its encouragements that will be true. They'll have lots of true statements and right ideas. But I hope to give us a better perspective on why the Bible says that we need to be people of thanksgiving. 
So much of the advice that you and I hear from our friends or from those that are influencing us, they, they range in various, uh, uh, on the, on the scale in various ways, depending on somebody's personality, might have the stoic friends. So just suck it up. Get over it. Your, your life's not as bad as somebody else's and we can always find those people down the street or in, in the city or out of state or even out of the country to Sally Struthers point that have it much worse than us and they're right and they're true. We have our Annie friends. Those are the ones who are just walking in and going, the sun will come out tomorrow. And you're just like, I just want to, you know, your sun might not come out tomorrow for you. But, you know, you have your optimism that comes in and says, cheer up tomorrow. This will be better. And there's some truth to that. If you've ever experienced that, it's amazing what a night's sleep will do or a little bit of time to make us feel a little bit better about what's going on. There's some truth to it. But when we try to force it on or try to wear it, it's like an itchy coat. It doesn't quite work. It's not making it go down any easier. Sometimes our friends' well-meaning will give us very simplistic answers. I was in your shoes. This is what I did, and it all turned around. So therefore, go and do that. Have a good life. There's some truth to that. We've got scriptures everywhere that talk to us about the put on, put off, that we that we get rid of this in order to gain this, and we change our behavior. But the point is, is that the gospel does something much more fundamentally deep in our core. You and I know that to be more positive or thankful is, is a better, healthier way to live. We already know these facts. We know that our friends and coworkers and our, our children and everything want to be around people that are like that. That's, it's not a mystery to us. I wish I could be more like that because I know that my friends appreciate it. And we know that many people have it worse off than we do. But this is part of the thing that we try to explain to people when we, when we have an opportunity to disciple that. We know that because sometimes people come in. I just had it happen this week. I had somebody say, I don't really want to complain because I know a lot of people have it worse than me. But we really want to know how to help this person. We say, look, your your situation, you can't transfer the suffering of somebody else just to get over your stuff. That your suffering in your context is real and the Lord has real plans to do in the midst of it. If you don't share this, if you don't open up, if you don't work through this, then the Lord won't have his work done in your heart and in your life. So, yeah, I understand the comparison game, but at the same time, this is your struggle that you're walking through. You can't relate to somebody else's yet. We struggle to just be thankful, put on thankfulness, be a happier person, be a more positive person when our life is particularly disappointing or it's particularly difficult or even on the positive side, sometimes when it's more distracting because of the blessings that are pouring in, sometimes the better we have it, the further away from God we get because we don't recognize the need for him as much. You see, it happens in all these wide spectrums. But living in Christ, that means when you and I surrender our heart to the Lord Jesus Christ, when we invite him into our hearts to rescue us from our sin, to allow his Holy Spirit to move within us and begin a transformative work on the inside, that when that happens, we can actually change at a level that goes beyond just the cliches and the power of positive thinking. I'm hoping to show you this morning that the enemy of thankfulness is not just grumbling and complaining. That is the opposite of it, but that isn't its greatest enemy. The greatest enemy of thankfulness is a distrust in the Lord. So we're going to go to Psalm 73. This is a song written by a a man named Asaph. So if you're making your way in the Bible there, I'm going to get to that in a minute. We're going to have the text of scripture up here on the wall if you don't have a Bible with you. 
But I wanted to talk just about the, the music that we sing because most of the worship songs that we sing over the last several decades are informed or influenced or sometimes even straight out of the book of Psalms. The Psalms is the, is the worship hymnal, if you will, of the children of Israel. And David, King David, was a prominent writer in the book of Psalms. And Asaph, as we're going to discover, was somebody that was coming up in the ranks and writing more and more. And so several of his songs and poems are included in the book. But we sing lots of songs that are pregnant with truth and meaning. I was just, I was typing a line down in um, His Mercy is More. Some of you might have thought I was texting in church, and I wouldn't dare. <laughs> I was just writing down a line from a song. I love this. And, and John pointed this out. John Phillips pointed this out to me one, one day when we were kind of planning a worship set and working through stuff. He was just saying, he goes, I'm blown away by this line. And I saw it again this morning. And it was so profound that our sins are cast into a sea without bottom or shore. You think about the imagery of that, the depth of the ocean. There's no bottom to it. It doesn't crash against any shore that the Lord has gotten rid of our sins in such a, di- a deep, faraway place that it can never wash back up to us, right? But here's the question. Do we really believe, do we really mean the truth that we sing about? Have you caught yourself sometimes kind of like, wow, I'm robotically singing this melody or singing the words that I see on the screen, but I haven't internalized, I haven't compartmental, I've, I've compartmentalized my life. So, so I haven't really addressed the fact that, do I believe this about God? Do I believe that he's taken in this particular instance, my sins and gotten rid of them so far away that they can't come back on me? How many of us live like that? We've got long memories, don't we, of the things that we've done? And yet the promise of God says, I get rid of those. The, uh, uh, Matt and, um, and Beth Redman gave the church, uh, the, the universal church, if you will, the, uh, the blessing of a song in the early 2000s called Blessed Be Your Name. And in that one of the pre-chorus lines, it says, every blessing you pour out, I'll turn back to praise. And we're going, I, okay, I get that. God does something good for me. I'm going to give him praise. I'm going to tell people in my life, God has given me this good thing. I can do that. And then as this song keeps doing, it keeps flip-flopping back between praising him in the good and praising him in the bad. It says, when the darkness closes in, Lord, still I will say, blessed be the name of the Lord. I love well-crafted, well-written worship songs. I love beautiful melodies. I think that they engage a part of our being that connects us with the Lord in a different way. And so many of these things, as we said earlier, have come from the Psalms. But I'm going to take a break from sort of the serious trajectory that we're on. And I just want to point out a couple of things that I'm suggesting we don't put to melody out of the Psalms. Because no matter how beautiful a chord progression or no, how, how, uh, how lovely a, a melody line, some of these phrases just don't fit. So bear with me a second because I got to get this out of my system. It's a soapbox, a soapbox I couldn't wait to get on. Psalm 3. The writer says, arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. And we're like, so far, so good. It's a good verse right there. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek and you break. Wait, let's do this to Melody. And you break the teeth of the wicked. Beautiful, right? What was that song we sang in church this morning? It was something about, oh, it was the breaking of the teeth of those bad people. How did that go? It's, it's terrible. You can't. That's not worship lyrics. It was for the people that it meant something to at the time. 
Psalm 68 says, but God will strike the heads of his enemies. And here's a phrase nobody should ever write in a modern worship song. The hairy crown of him who walks in his guilty ways. It's a little off-putting. The Lord said, I'll bring them back from Bashan. I will bring them back from the depths of the sea that you may. And here's where it gets dark again. Picture a nice happy melody. Smiling worship team in skinny jeans and man buns and ready to go, right? That you may strike your feet in their blood, that the tongues... Of, well, I'll let you finish the reading. It's pretty gruesome. Could you imagine that? Just to, uh, No, those don't work. But when we come to the end of Psalm 73, the words of Asaph, where he says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Now we're getting somewhere. I've heard songs written like this, right? My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it's good to be near God. I've made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Asaph was most likely handpicked by David, David who had been leading the congregation in worship. And prior to the building of the temple at the tent of meeting, he was identifying certain individuals perhaps that could lead the congregation in their, in their musical worship and things. And so Asaph presumably was kind of coming up in the ranks, given more responsibility to write. And he begins to go on a truth journey that we see playing out right before our eyes in Psalm 73 only to eventually write what one author is calling a tale of a heart seduced and then healed, a heart isolated and then restored to fellowship. We're going to love the honesty that comes from Asaph this morning as we just walk through the sections right in a row as we go through this psalm. But before we get there, it's important to understand that Jesus had given uh, the world uh, instruction on worship, that he had put a framework and a context on praise. He says in John 4, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him because why? God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And today we've got so many people that are taking that one word spirit, which is of course true because Jesus said it, and they're saying, well, that's what our worship is anchored in. That's what our worship is expressed in his spirit, which in our modern context means spiritual or emotional or transcendently connected. So we feel like, okay, our worship needs to be the thing that only moves us emotionally. And then wherever that goes, it goes. But Jesus gave us, gave us the, 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 um, the dual anchor of our worship by sp- saying that God is spirit, which means he won't always be in flesh in front of you. That he is uh, transcendent above the earth that you can see and touch. That he is beyond all of this so that we enter into a worship that acknowledges who he is. That he is everywhere. But that it is anchored in the truth of his word that he has given to us. So that we know how, uh, uh, how far we go down this path of worshiping quote unquote in spirit. Worship or praise is informed by truth. And so what Asaph is going through, he's going to walk us through as his journey 
from, 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 from doubting the Lord, from doubting all the things that were going on in his life. And he's going to walk us through his journey towards truth and who God is so that he wasn't just going to be happy. He had to, or be thankful. He had to become thankful. So let's start nearly at the beginning. Let's go to verse two and see how he begins this journey. Psalm 73, verse two. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Please tell me you can relate to this, that you have seen what seems so obvious to be the prosperity and slipping through the cracks of the wicked because it's almost like no raindrops touch them. And they just seem to prosper and do better. Their houses multiply, their cars multiply, their promotions come fast and furious. And Asaph is saying, I was there. This is pretty interesting from a worship leader of the congregation. He's saying, I had almost fallen way into the pit. My steps had nearly slipped. He goes on to explain this skewed perspective of the wicked that his, his, his understanding of who they were, what they were doing and what they were receiving had become so distorted because of the way he was feeling about it. So he explains this for us beginning in verse four. He says, for they have no pains until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, because they keep getting away with it, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. And here's where Asaph's concern gets cranked up because he is, he is leading a congregation of people. He is, he is uh, wanting to see them grow closer in their relationship with God. And what he sees happening instead is verse 10. He says, therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in these phonies that, that they're starting to drag the congregation of the Lord away. Verse 11, and they say, how can God know? Is there, is there knowledge in the most high? Is he really as omniscient as we've been led to believe? Because they're, they're starting to see the success of the wicked. They're seeing that everything they touch is turning to gold. And they're like, maybe this whole jam with God is not where it's at. Maybe it needs to be over here with these guys. Verse 12, behold, these are the wicked. This is my perception of the wicked, Asaph is saying. They're always at ease. They increase in riches. This is a very honest take from, from somebody who could have otherwise just pretended, no, everything's good. We got our music going. We got our high praise of the Lord. This is, this is where we need to be, right? It's, it's better as we hear all the time. I'd rather be in jail. I'd rather be in church on a Sunday morning than in jail. Amen, brothers. And everyone's supposed to go, amen. We have our lines and phrases <laughs> on cue. He said, I almost fell into this really dark pit because I wasn't seeing God's judgment. I wasn't seeing his correction. I just saw them getting away with it over and over and over again. And then this skewed perspective started, started happening as he was looking in the mirror. Think of the honesty of this in verse 13. He says, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. I, I want to pause here on this verse a little bit before we get into 14 and 15 because I think it's time for the church of Jesus Christ to express some real honesty 
about what trips us up. Some real honesty about what drags us into these pits. The more you and I are pretending around each other that sin isn't all that attractive and, you know, that stuff's disgusting. I don't know why anybody would do that and everything. The more that we sort of elevate ourselves on our high horse, I would never do such a thing. We're so quick. We're so close to just falling into that pit. And so Asaph is saying, I feel as though that it's all been in vain that I've worked towards cleanliness. You know, so many of us think that the moment I accept Christ into my heart, the moment I give my life to him, all of my desires for all the other stuff just go away. And every morning I wake up fully motivated to serve Christ. Every morning I I wake up just praising him and ready to evangelize and turn the world upside down. But when we wake up the next day and realize, you know, I still got a gravitational pull on my heart. A lot of the things that my flesh once craved are still kind of knocking at the door saying, hey, don't forget about us. Remember how much fun we had? Asaph is saying there was work that went into staying clean, to keeping my hands clean and my heart pure. And now I'm starting to wonder if it's worth it. I feel like I'm missing out on everything they're enjoying. And they don't seem to be getting all the same consequences that the preacher warned me about growing up. Doesn't seem to be happening to them. Can you relate to where Asaph is at? Verse 14, he says, for all the day long, I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. It seems that everything that goes against me, he was just, he was just blowing up to be a punishment for him. I hear that so often. What am I doing wrong that bad keeps coming into my life? He was all wrapped up in his own, in his own world. He was all, all wrapped up in the fact that he wasn't getting what the others were. You ever been so low or so heavy? And so sad that when you see somebody else laughing and just enjoying life, you're like, you don't deserve that. You know, who, where do you get off being able to have fun when I'm suffering so badly? It creeps into our hearts and it brings us down into this pit. There was some wisdom still in Asaph because he says in verse 15, this very interesting phrase. He says, if I had said, I will speak thus. In other words, if I just share out loud what I'm going through in my heart, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Asaph had been in leadership long enough, had developed maturity long enough. He started recognizing, I think I'm in a season of doubt. And if you don't think that that's possible in the life of a believer, wait, because it will come. And sometimes it seems that it comes more regularly than you would like. Why am I doubting again, Lord? Because we're so fallible, we don't have it all figured out. We don't see all things. And Asaph was wise enough to say, if I fully express all of my doubt, wear it on my sleeve, I'm going to discourage and sidetrack and detract, I should say, the congregation of the Lord. So thanks be to God that Asaph had enough wisdom in the moment that while his heart was heavy, while he was dejected by all that he was seeing around him, he said, I'm not going to step out and just complain with a megaphone. Now think about this. What are our religious leaders doing now that are giving up, that are quitting? What are they doing with their dark times? What are they doing when they step into a pit that they don't seem like they can get out? They're tweeting it all over the world. I think I'm out. I don't think I believe this stuff anymore. I think I'm abandoning this whole God thing. As best I can tell, as one of the authors says, best I can tell all that I've preached and and said, I'm not one of those people anymore. 
It's almost like there's no maturity or no recognition that maybe I'm in a funk. Maybe I'm burnt out. Maybe I've been put off by all these terrible experiences in life or in the church that I was brought up in. Or some of these guys, I've watched some of the, uh, I watched a documentary on Joshua Harris who wrote a popular book called I Kiss Dating Goodbye. And he's one of the guys that says, I'm out. I don't do this anymore. And I was watching this documentary about him before he had actually made that announcement. And I'm, and I'm just amazed at how when his book was selling like gangbusters and it became the new wave in the church because it was a new way to approach dating, he was on every single talk show. They were coming up with the, the coffee mugs and the bumper stickers and the keychains and everything was an eye kiss dating. That would kill anybody's faith in what the Lord's doing. It would be so micro-sized into this packaged thing that the church can just own for itself and run with and make a buck and everything. No wonder why somebody in his shoes would be like, I don't think this is what a, this is what it's about. He started slipping into a path that Asaph was falling into the same pit. And instead of having the wherewithal and the wisdom to say, I think the Lord can take me out of this, even if my life looks entirely different. If he had just bit his tongue for a little bit longer and waited for the patience and had the patience that the Lord would bring him out of it, maybe this whole scandalous whatever all across the country and the world would be a little bit different when these guys step away or walk away. Asaph said, if I had said that, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But he finds daylight. He looks up from this pit and has a turning point. In verse 16, he says, but when I thought how to understand this, and this is what I really appreciate about Asaph is that he engaged his mind, didn't just give in to his feelings. He said, I wrestled with this. I tried to make sense of this. And it seemed to me a wearisome task. In the first services, I saw that I was just reminded of an old line from a Jars of Clay song, probably about 15 or so years ago that said, if the world was as it should be, maybe I could get some sleep. Is Asaph not carrying the weight of the world on his shoulders, carrying the, the results of what the Lord's doing in this earth on his shoulders? And if he can't make sense of it, he's going, I don't know. I just can't put this stuff together and it's killing me. It's wearing me out. I, I can't make sense of how this isn't coming together. It seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. For Asaph, coming into the sanctuary of God would be the equivalent of us opening the word, walking into our church, being around our brothers and sisters in Christ, being around the people who are not in the same pit that we are, who are still having faith in the truth, faith in God's plan, and and allowing that to saturate our mind and creep into our hearts. Asaph says, I made myself available. I went back into the sanctuary of God and I saw how things end for the people I thought were just laughing their way through life. No doubt he had heard his mentor David's words from Psalm 37 in the back of his mind. Verses one and two, David says, fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Just watch it for a little bit longer, Asaph. You're going to see this whole thing just wither away, fade away. You're going to be able to pull those right out of the ground. That started giving him hope. He got a clearer perspective on the plight of the wicked. He started to see that what they were enjoying now was for a season because it couldn't last. Verse 18, he says, truly, you have set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they're destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, you rouse yourself. You despise them as phantoms. 
And in the middle of that song that we had written earlier, as we saw Asaph's words in verse 27, he says, for behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful. Now let's ask ourselves the question, is Asaph celebrating the demise of the wicked? Is Asaph saying, man, I was so burdened and so heavy and so taxed with, with how I th- saw my life going compared to theirs. And then when I saw what they got, I was like, yes, they're going to get it. And I can't wait to watch it. Is this what Asaph's doing? I don't think so. He doesn't seem to be celebrating this, but he's acknowledging the truth of the outcome. See, what Asaph had started off with, and I apologize, I don't have verse one up here on the screen. I missed this. But if you go to verse one, he writes, he starts off, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Asaph is starting off from a context of God's goodness and his faithfulness so that when he gets to the point where he's saying, when I realize that that what awaits them is destruction, this wasn't hoping that was the case. It wasn't celebrating that was the case, but it was celebrating the fact that there's a God on the throne who is right, who is just, who is pure. And because he punishes wickedness, that they eventually get what's coming to them, that the mercy that he was trusting in was trustworthy. That you you don't receive mercy outside of the context of justice. The part to celebrate is that if God will punish the wicked, that means that when he says, but I will give mercy to the sinner, we can bank on it because he's the only one with the power and the right to do that. So I think Asaph is is celebrating the goodness of God while I'm sure having a broken heart at the demise of the wicked. This gives him a clearer perspective of himself, what we would today call, you know, Asaph found a better self-image. But that isn't really what this is. That Asaph has a clearer perspective on the Lord and what he's doing and what he's going to accomplish and how this impacts him as a follower of this God. He says in verse 21, When my soul personally, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you, God. Nevertheless, because of your mercy, because of the forgiveness of this holy God, this just God, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. In other words, if you can take me, God, and promise me a home in heaven and promise me a presence of of yours, then I know it's real. Verse 24 You guide me with your counsel and afterward you will receive me to glory. If, if what Asaph is proclaiming, if what he's praising here is true, let's just ask this question. Lord, if this is true, if, if, if you're promising me your guidance, your counsel, your daily presence in walking with me, and on top of this, you're promising me that when this is all over, I get rest and security and peace with you for all of eternity. If this is true, then shouldn't this reduce the perspective or the pain of the struggles that we go through? Allow yourself to answer that question in the quietness of your heart. If it's true that God has promised those things that he hasn't promised to the wicked, let them have their day now because it's all they get. If that's true, then isn't that promise of what's to come enough to not make it all go away, to not make us laugh through all of our struggles and trials, but to, to put it in a better perspective that I can endure this because one day it'll all be over. 
This is how Asaph moves beyond just a cheer up theology as though Annie were his pastor. Just put a happy face on it. Sun will come out tomorrow. This is why he writes what we started off with in verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. That's, that wasn't how we started. I desired what they were getting. I desired to be arrogant like them and not have any consequence. I desired to get the riches, the prosperity, the health, all the things that I saw the wicked just constantly getting away with. But I came to the place where my desire had shifted. Now all I desire is you. My flesh and my heart may fail. How do we know this, Asaph? Well, because it did. Because I ended up falling into that pit because my flesh, my, my best thoughts and intentions, my best efforts led me to that pit. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And here's the praise in the demise of the wicked. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, for me, what I found is best, is, is safest, what is good, is to be near God. And that, that should tell us how much weight is in the word good in this. We could say what's, what's necessary for survival, what is absolutely essential in my life, is to be near God. I have made the Lord God my rescue, my shelter, my safe place, my refuge, that I may be thankful that I may sing praises, that I may tell of your works. You see where this comes from? Praise that comes from the outflow of truth and an acknowledgement of what God has actually done and promises to do in the life of his children and for his children starts to result in this praise is just exploding. Can't contain it. Imagine what your, your Sunday morning experience would look like if you looked at Sunday morning as a reporting stop. You know, if you're like, I can't wait to land so I can tell the world what God has done in my life this week. And unfortunately, churches are turning that into all the positive stuff. If you can just say, I got the promotion. If you can just say, I got the new car, I got the raise, I got all that kind of stuff. Then that's how God's been good. But what if a church was marked by praise of an acknowledgement of the truth of how faithful God has been, even if the week did not technically go well? Even though the text doesn't tell us why we still struggle, why we have to continue to watch the wicked prosper seemingly for a time, I think we can definitely infer it by some of Asaph's words. It's important for us to remember that we are going to endure trials to learn dependence on the Lord. He says that God is the strength of my heart, not all of my wisdom, not my skills, not my mentoring under David, any of those things that I had to come to the end of myself so that God would be the strength of my heart. Our trials, our suffering, our, our challenges in life are also to expose and uproot sinful demands and behaviors. Asaph said, when I was pricked in my heart, I was brutish. I was ignorant towards you. I was like a beast. Now, keep in mind, what you did not just hear me say was the reason you're going through those things is because of your sinful demands and desires. Though sometimes that's true, right? Sometimes we, we create our own situations that we're enduring. But sometimes, or all the time, I should say, regardless of whether or not it was sent directly to correct us or punish us, all trials and suffering will reveal the things in our hearts that are sinful and demanding. 
This is what Asaph is going through. He didn't start off from a place of pride and arrogance, but he did start to envy. He started to take his eyes off the promises of God and see what was going on in the world around him. It started to reveal how brutish and ignorant he was. Our trials are still in our lives to demonstrate the light and life of Jesus. I think it's interesting that as we've been studying in 2 Corinthians, the journey of the Apostle Paul, you get this sense from uh, probably more than the sense, but from some of the things that he said back to the church, if this never worked, if, if all that I was giving you and pouring out to you and begging you to change, and if it didn't work and we had to shut the doors of the Corinthian church and it all just folds, if, if all of that was for naught, then the suffering that I've endured, the punishment that I've kind of carried on my body, if nothing else, I get to imitate my Savior. I get to look like Christ who did that and more for me. So that maybe the reputation of Paul, he might say, would be that they would say he looks just like his Savior. And that would seem to be enough for Paul. Maybe our situations are still in our life to increase our desire for heaven. We, we, we can't imagine what it will be like. And I, I don't know if we'll be able to sleep in heaven. I think sleep's pretty heavenly, so I hope so. Imagine those mattresses, right? But let's just say figuratively that we get to sleep in heaven. Could you imagine waking up one morning and not having the same fears that you have in the mornings that you wake up now? What's this day going to present to it, uh, to me? What are these people going to do to me? What, how am I going to make a mess of my situation again? Could you imagine all of that just being lifted and, and gone? And you say, man, I just get to wake up and go see how people are praising God and how running through the streets of gold and just, there's no weight, no gravitational pull on our hearts that says, ooh, this is not going to go well today. Can you imagine? Of course we can. We don't know anything like that feeling yet. And so for if no other reason, the things that we go through, the struggles that we have, either present or to come, would be that it would increase a taste that one day that day is coming, that that promise is made available to us and that we get to anchor our hope in it, that we can increase our desire for heaven. Our reality is not fully seen. Our discouragement comes when we start believing what we're seeing. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, he says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. It's like, he's like, we're looking through these rose colored glasses or we're looking through these dimly lit goggles or, or we've got branches in our view. We can't quite see what's going on. We can't quite see what the reality is. But then one day when we're with him, we'll know him face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even, if I, even as I have been fully known. We don't see it all right now. Our reality is not what we see right now. Amen. I'm going to give you just a really easy, well, I shouldn't say easy, simple assignment this morning. This week, you're going to be probably mixing it up with some friends and family. We go into Thanksgiving gatherings or something along those lines. You're going to be out and about during the week, maybe doing some shopping, different things like that. It would not be the weirdest thing in the world for you to say, I'm thankful for so-and-so or for such-and-such. That would be normal this week. So I'm going to ask you to go a little bit above and beyond normal. 
This is how we get to shine the light of Christ a little bit more than what everybody else is able to do. Most people are able to say, I'm thankful for my family. Thank you that I got work. I got whatever. And we can say those statements that we're thankful of. But what if our thankfulness came from something that we acknowledge God had me on a journey to discover? I didn't believe this before. I, you know, so if I'm saying, uh, I'm thankful for my kids, maybe I start to think a little bit more about the fact that I'm thankful that my kids have a relationship with God, then I wasn't sure that that was a given, and it never is. You know, I, I'm thankful that my, that my kids are, are not just because they're doing well in school, but because I know what kind of struggle it takes for them to do well in school, or that they resist the pressures or the temptations of the other things that throw them off kilter that I see with so many kids. What if our thankfulness had a little bit more meat to it? What if our thankfulness said, I recognize the work that God has done in order to get this to happen. And that's the thing I'm thankful about more than the outcome. You know, so many of us, we settle for being thankful for the things that have gone right. But we have an opportunity to be thankful for everything, whether it's fully matured yet, fully realized, or it's still in the process. We can be thankful for everything, knowing that he's bringing us to a place of deeper trust in him. Would you stand and let's close our time in prayer. Lord God, I want to thank you, Lord, for what you do in our midst. I thank you, God, for the healing that you bring to our hearts. I thank you for being able to gather in a place like this. We get to be around friends, brothers and sisters who understand the journey, who understand the struggle. I pray, God, that you would work in miraculous ways in so many families. I pray that you would use this holiday season to turn things around in such unexpected ways. By your grace, Lord not just by our own stronger efforts or muscling through, though you do have us work hard at these things, but by the grace of the work that you're going to do, Lord, help us to trust in you. When we trust in you and your plan, we truly are just more thankful people. So I pray, God, that you would be pleased with our efforts, but Lord, be present in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.